to our hearts tonight is to honor you in all that we say and all that we do. And Father, again, we just pray for our time in the Word right now that you would be our teacher, that the teaching ministry of your Holy Spirit would be active and alive and working in every single heart that's here. Lord, we love you and we praise you. We thank you for your love and your grace. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. God bless you guys. If you have your Bibles, turn to Numbers chapter 4. Continuing our verse-by-verse study through the Old Testament. Uh, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. If you don't have a Bible, that means you need one. So just raise your hand. We'll be happy to loan you a Bible. And if you uh, need to take that home, if you don't have one at home, please consider that our gift and take it with you. For your parents who may not know, there is a youth outing this Friday night. They're going down to Calvary Chapel Monterey for like a, uh, there's a youth concert and kind of outreach. I want to encourage you to have your kids go to that if they don't know about it. Or, or maybe if you didn't know, you can encourage them to go. And um, I know there's details, but you can get them from Vince. I'm not sure what time they're leaving, but it's this coming Friday. All right, let's take a look at Numbers chapter 4. And before we do, I just want to catch you up like I do every week. I'm a big believer in bringing us up to speed. If you're here for the first time, I just want to say welcome. It's great to have you here. On Sunday mornings, we go verse by verse right through the New Testament. We started in Matthew. Now we'll be in Acts chapter 13 and 14 this coming weekend. And we started in Genesis 1, the first Wednesday night, and now we're in Numbers chapter 4 tonight. And a couple weeks ago, I think I mentioned this, there was a lady here visiting. When she heard I was in Numbers, she said she wanted to leave. Numbers? Oh, man. You know, I, I came for a Bible study. I know we're going to be in Numbers. But here's the good news, as we, as we will see tonight. Every single word, every single paragraph, every single chapter that's in the Bible is in there for a reason. And every one of them still applies to our lives today. Amen? It's not an old antiquated book. It's not, it is the living, breathing Word of God. And he didn't do away with the Old Testament when he came. He did away with the Old Covenant. We now live under the New Covenant, but the, the Old Testament still applies to us. And I don't know about you guys, but I love the Old Testament. I just love such clear pictures of Jesus Christ all over the place. Now the book of Numbers, real briefly, is called Numbers because it numbers the people, the children of Israel, twice. We talked about how in Genesis we saw man's sinfulness, how he fell away from God in the garden. And then in Exodus, we saw him being delivered out of bondage, the bondage in Egypt. Then in Leviticus, we saw the atoning work, the work of atonement, how to come before God in holiness, that there must be shedding of blood for the remission of sins. And I told you that I believe the book of Numbers is a better title for it. While every word in the Bible is, is ordained by God and is divinely inspired, the titles of the books aren't necessarily. And Numbers is an okay name, but I think people get put off by that name. I believe a better name would be in the wilderness, because what we see in Numbers is we see the travelings in the wilderness of the children of Israel. And we see what was an 11-day journey turn into a 40-year trek because of their disobedience and them not heeding the Word of God. And so we're going to see that sin has consequences as we continue through Numbers. Now we've also seen in Numbers that God is definitely a God of order. In the first chapter, we saw him number the people, showing his love for every individual. Then in chapter 2, we saw just God's divine plan as they marched through the, the wilderness. And those of you who are here, I told you you could read that chapter, and if you didn't dig into it, you would look at it like an instruction manual, like how to put together a barbecue or something. It just told you these people camp in that direction, and these people camp in this direction, and these people camp that direction. But the awesome thing is, when you take the time to look at the chapter in depth, and you take the, the numbers of people and you put them into the formation they would be in. What did the Lord see as He looked down on His people traveling through the wilderness? What was it? It was a cross. And as they traveled through the wilderness, they were traveling and camped, if you will, in the cross. What an awesome picture. In the middle of it was a tabernacle where the Spirit of the living God dwelt upon them. 
So they were traveling through the wilderness. They were encamped in the cross. The, whole, the Spirit of God was upon them. And then we looked at the, the four different emblems that they held up, the lion and the ox and the man and the eagle, and how those pointed very clearly to me to the four Gospels. And they also pointed, again, just to, to God's picture of what he was doing with those tribes. And it also points to the angelic host, because when you get to uh, Revelation, it says the four living creatures in heaven, the angelic host around the throne, had the face of a lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle. So we knew that the angels were with them, the Holy Spirit was upon them, they were encamped in the cross, they were headed to the land of promise, they were dwelling in tents. Boy, that's us. We're living in tents, amen? These bodies right here are temporary tents. We're encamped in the cross in the sense that through His shed blood, we have the promise of the land of promise before us. We have the tabernacle and the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. Amen? And we have the angels around about us. So we look at this and you say, man, that was written 3,500 years ago. How could that apply to me? Well, very clearly it does. And then last week in Numbers chapter 3, we saw the calling to serve. We saw the general calling to the Levites as a whole to do the work of the tabernacle, and we saw why they were called. And just to refresh your memory, remember last week we talked about this, that God originally called the firstborn and he replaced the firstborn with the Levites. Why did he do that? Well, because when Moses came down from Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 32, he comes down from Mount Sinai, and what does he see when he gets down from Mount Sinai? He sees a golden calf. And he sees his people, these people that God had given him to shepherd, and what are they doing? They're having a rager. They're drinking, they're fornicating, their, their clothes are off, and they're dancing around this golden calf. And Moses, in a fit of rage, takes the Ten Commandments and he breaks them against the ground. Just as they were breaking the commandments, he broke the tablets. And as we know, what happened then, that Moses was distressed as the people were, they, were, they thought Moses wasn't coming back, and they cried out and said, you know, at least in Egypt we had leeks and onions, and they, they cried out for a God, and Aaron made this God for them. Now they're dancing, and they've taken their eyes off the Lord. And when Moses comes down, he looks at the group, and he says, all of you who will serve God, come to me. And all of the Levites came to him, every single one of them. And so God then chose them. Why? Because they responded to his call. They responded to that call. I believe there's a clear picture in two ways when you see that. One, for salvation. That God's offering of salvation is universal, but it must be accepted by the individual. It is His desire that none should perish, no, not one. And He offers everyone salvation, but He will never force Himself on anyone. We must respond ourselves. But I also believe, as Christians, that God has a calling on our life. And we have to choose to respond to that calling. You know, we can be on the cruise ship to heaven with a get-out-of-hell-free card in our wallet and just wait till the rapture comes. And, you know, and we'll still go to heaven, but I'll tell you what, don't you want to be found doing when the Lord comes back? Don't you want to hear those words, well done, thou good and faithful servant? I want to be faithful. I don't want, he saved me to use me. He saved you to use you. And the Levites responded to the call, and because of their response, now he's going to place them in the priestly ministry, the sons of Aaron, and then the, the Levites, the rest of them are going to get to serve in the tabernacle. So that's where we get to this week, and, and I want to say one last thing about last chapter. Remember what happened when they were called to serve. What did they have to do? He called them, they all came to him, then what did he tell them? He said, you have to take out the sword. You remember this from last week? You have to take out the sword, and he had to go slay their, even some of their own you know, relatives, cousins and things, this is the 12 tribes of Israel, he had to go slay them with the sword because of their fornication and because of their rebellion against God. And the picture for us is that the sword is a representation of what? It's God's word. 
And when we're called by God and we respond to Him, we need to always do it in love, but we need to be willing to take God's Word to people in a loving way and say, man, bro, it breaks my heart, but let me show you what the Bible says. You've missed the Lord. You're outside of His will. He loves you. And I would pray that people would love me enough to bring that to me. If you see me doing something outside of God's will, I would pray that you would love me enough to come to me. And he says those who are called not only respond to God, but they're willing to take His Word and minister to others with it. Not that you're necessarily called to be a pastor, but we're all called to rightly divide the word of truth. We're all called to be able to share our faith with our coworkers and our neighbors and our family and our friends. And if you remember, how many people died that day? Do you remember? How many people died that day? 3,000. Remember that when the law was given, the law pointed to man's sin, 3,000 souls died that day. And when the Holy Spirit was given in Acts chapter 2, how many people got saved that day? 3,000. The law reveals man's sin, and the Holy Spirit is the one that draws us to salvation. You see, in Numbers and in Acts, things working perfectly together. You've got to love the Bible. It rocks. Okay, so we get tonight to chapter 4, and we're going to see following God's lead. That's how I titled the message tonight. The children of Israel, if they're going to remain in God's presence, they're going to, several things have to happen. First thing, they must continue to make sacrifices before Him. Back in Leviticus, he gave them sacrificial laws. They needed to keep them. It would push their sins forward to the coming Messiah, and they had to keep the sacrifice. The sacrifice could only happen on the Day of Atonement. Only the high priest could bring the sacrifice in. It had to be the blood of a firstborn spotless animal that was sacrificed before God. All of this being a picture of whom? Jesus Christ. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Only through His shedding of His blood can there be remission of sins. And who's the great high priest? Jesus is. Isn't it interesting that the great high priest comes in with the blood of the Lamb, and both the Lamb and the high priest are pictures of Jesus. And He goes into that holy place through that veil only on the Day of Atonement and makes sacrifice. But also we're going to see that for them to remain in God's presence, they would have to daily, the first thing they would need to do is look to the Lord. They would need to respond in obedience to what He's called them to do. And then they would need to be in fellowship with others. And we'll go through those in detail in just a moment as we go through. But Numbers chapter 4, if you read it again, you're going to say, this is instructions for moving the tabernacle. Okay. What's in chapter 5, right? But the reality is that if it's in the Bible, it's in there for a reason. And my prayer is that you will see clearly tonight what God has put in there and that you'll apply it to your life. So, These are instructions for moving the tabernacle. The camp would then follow them. Remember, they're encamped in the cross. And as we look at this heavy-duty work of of moving the tabernacle, we're going to see five things. We're going to see, one, the age of service. Then we're going to see the the duties of the Kohathites. Then the duties of the Gershonites. Then the duties of the Merarites. And then the number of the, the total people that are in service to God. And how God's divine plan is that everybody use their gifts. Now again... Well, that sounds pretty thrilling, Pastor Dave. I can't wait to hear about the duties of the Gershonites. But I promise you, just hold on. God's going to show you something. All right, let's take a look, beginning in verse 1 of number chapter 4, following God's lead, remaining in His presence. It says there in verse 1, Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Take a census of the sons of Kohath from among the children of Levi by their families by their father's house. From 30 years old above, even to 50 years old, all who enter the service to do the work in the tabernacle of meeting. Now, last chapter, they numbered the Levites from what age above? Who remembers? How old? One month. 
Last time, remember, he was talking about redemption last week. Remember how he traded Levite for firstborn? It was a one-for-one trade, and they numbered all of the Levites one month old and above, and then they numbered all the firstborn, and then there was a, a couple of hundred that weren't covered by the Levites, and what did they have to do? They had to do what? They had to pay, remember? Redemption, because salvation costs something. It costs our Savior everything. And it was silver they were redeemed with, the price of a slave today, you know, and how they used silver, and Jesus was paid for, uh, was, re, was uh, betrayed with silver. But we'll see here that, that now he changes it from age one month to age 30, because now he's not just talking about how many Levites are there, but how many of them are ready to serve God in the tabernacle. And so the age of service was from the age of 30 to the age of 50. Now you might say, Why? Well, isn't it interesting that when you look through the Bible, that the age of 30 is pretty significant. How old was David when he began his earthly ministry? He was 30. How old was John the Baptist when he began his earthly ministry? He was 30. How old was Jesus when he began his earthly ministry? He was 30. And I find it interesting that they were all 30 years old, and that's because the Bible tells us to lay hands on no man quickly. That... David, though anointed king in his teenage years, did not become king until he was 30 because God had work he wanted to do in David's heart to prepare him to be king. Now we know that's not true of our Savior. He was always prepared because he's God. But at the same time, I think the point is being made. You know, today we have three years of study for 30 years of ministry. Where Jesus had 30 years of preparation, though he's perfect holy God, for three years of ministry. I think too often we want to hurry up. and, And the Lord wants us just to sit at his feet. And to fall in love with him and lay hands on no man quickly. Now you lay hands on no man quickly. Remember Paul, he was converted on the road to Damascus. But what most people don't know, he spent seven to ten years in the desert studying before he ever taught anybody anything. Um, Moses, how many years did he spend in the desert in preparation? Forty years. And the Bible says, lay hands on no man quickly. And I want to encourage you, sometimes as, as Christians, we, you know, we want God, you know, right now do it, Lord. And you know, sometimes we, we're looking at the destination rather than looking at the journey that we're on and how God is using the things that we're going through right this moment to prepare us. You know, I am so blessed that God knew way better than I did what I needed to prepare me to do what I'm doing today. Not that I've arrived, I've got a lot to learn yet, okay? But I serve with two different pastors who are totally different from each other, and God used both of them to teach me an incredible amount. From allowing me to do youth ministry and prison ministry and men's ministry and counsel people and, and teach married couples and teach the singles and teach in the children's ministry and, you know, I mean, everything under the sun you can think of. And God took every step that I took was a part of God's plan. When I came to Northern California in 1996, I thought I was going to plant a church. And it didn't happen for five years later because God knew that he wanted to do more in me to prepare me and he's still working on me and praise God that he will continue to work on me until I get to heaven and the same is true for all of us amen and we see here that they're only from age 30 to age 50 were they allowed to serve in the tabernacle now why well they're going to be moving stuff what they're going to be doing is picking up heavy stuff and then carrying it through the desert and so they needed to be strong to do that now, it's interesting that age 50, they would retire them, and they, they no longer had to do that heavy-duty ministry. Now, they still served in the tabernacle, but not the same way. 
And what their main job was, as soon as they turned 50, was they would go to the 25-year-old guys who were getting ready to start ministry at age 30, and they would spend years preparing them. You know, I think that's the best way to learn. You know, in these cemeteries, I mean, these seminaries today, you have a lot of people that get up and teach how to plant a church that have never planted a church in their life. They get up and tell you what a book says about, you know, this and what a book says about that. And the reality is the best thing to do is here these guys are going to be discipled by somebody who spent 20 years doing the very thing they're about to do. I praise God for John Snodderly. I praise God for Don McClure. I praise God for my dad. Men who had all been in the ministry a long time who invested their lives in me so that I might grow. And you know what? We need to be making disciples of all nations, the Bible says. Amen? And I want to encourage you. You should be discipling somebody and somebody should be discipling you. You never get to the point where, okay, I'm at the top of the hook. Nobody just, you should always continue to be seeking after those who are more mature in their faith that you can spend time with. I desire that. And at the same time, looking to those younger in the faith who you can pour your life into. And that's what we see here with the Levites. From age 30 to 50, they would serve. And they would, again, through all the trials they went through prior to that, it was preparation for ministry. And the same is true of each one of us. Again, this is the ideal training, I believe. Again, by those who've already been in ministry. So they're going to be numbered from age 30 to 50. And now we're going to look at three families again. Remember, these are all Levites. So now we're getting into not tribes, but families. And each of these families has a specific calling. We talked about this last week. I believe you and your family, whether it's just you or you have a husband or you have a husband or a wife or you have children, that God doesn't call just men or women. I believe he calls families. My wife has to be just as called to ministry for me to be a senior pastor as I do. I truly believe that. Because she, you know what? She has to be able to support what I'm doing and, ha- and see the vision that God's given. And, and you know, it's a, her own calling to be my wife. The same is true for my children. There's sacrifices that my kids make and things like that. But again, it's a total blessing when we're called together. And we're going to see that here. We're going to look at three families, how they have different callings, but how God is behind every single one of them. First of all, beginning in verse 4, we're going to look at the Kohathites. Again, they're going to be charged with transforming or transporting the most holy of things. Look at verse 4. This is the service, service of the sons of Kohath and the tabernacle of meeting relating to the most holy things. So these guys, this is their calling. They responded when the Lord said, come to me. They came. And now God's going to give them a specific calling. And now they have a choice to make. They can respond to God's calling or they can just do things their own way and miss out on a blessing. Verse 5. When the camp prepares to journey, now I want to stop right there. So he tells them, you're going to transport the most holy things. Then he says, when the camp prepares to journey. Now what do we know about when the camp journeyed? They were, they were traveling in the wilderness. They were encamped in the cross. How often did they move? I want to share that with you. And I want to share with you something that I believe is significant that applies to every one of us. So how did they know when it was time to move the tabernacle? In Exodus chapter 40, verse 36 and 37 It says, whenever the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle, the children of Israel would go onward in all their journeys. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not journey till the day that it was taken up. When you get to Numbers chapter 5, it says that it would be taken up and sometimes it would rest upon that place for a day or two. Sometimes it might be there for a year or months or a year. But here's what I love about this. Where did the Levites camp? All of the Levites, including the Kohathites. Where were they? right next to the tabernacle. 
Because they were in service to God, they got to dwell closest to Him. And I believe that's still true today. When we serve the Lord, we have the most intimate relationship with Him. The Bible says you want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be the servant of all. And service is a sign of being filled with the Spirit of the living God. And so those who camp closest to Him, those who serve camp closest to Him. But I love this, that they moved when the cloud moved. Where did the cloud rest? On top of the tabernacle, directly over the Ark of the Covenant. Okay? Now, I love this. So you know what this meant? This meant where these guys have to keep their eyes pretty much all of the time. They had to be looking all the time. When they woke up in the morning and jumped out of their tent, where was the first place they would look? Is the cloud moved. Because when the cloud moved, it meant they were going to have to step into action and be obedient to the Lord. And I love the fact that the first thing these guys had to do, and the place they had to constantly keep their eyes, was on God. Isn't that a great application for us? Wake up in the morning, where should we put our eyes first? Yes, Lord. Prayer before our feet hit the ground. Walking and spending time in His presence. And they had to do it all day long because it would be about their business, but that cloud could move. It says in Numbers that it could move day or night. It could move in the middle of the night, it could move early in the morning, it could move in the middle of the day. And whenever it moved, they were to move immediately. And so they had to real, keep close eyes on, on what was happening with the cloud, God's presence. And that's a great example for us, that we keep our eyes on Him, constantly watching the cloud. First place they looked in the morning. To remain in God's presence, look first to God, and then respond in obedience to the moving of His Spirit. Then it says in verse 5, When the camp prepares the journey, Aaron and his sons shall come, and they shall take down the covering veil and cover the ark of the testimony. So Aaron and his sons... There's another name for them. What would it be? The what? The priests. Aaron and his sons were priests. All the priests were Levites, but not all the Levites were priests. Sometimes in the Bible you'll see the Levites and the priests. Why would they say that? Well, it's because only through the tribe of Aaron are they priests, or the line of Aaron, only his sons. The rest of the Levites serve in the tabernacle, but they're not priests. So they cannot serve in the holy place or the holy of holies. Only Aaron and his sons can do that. So Aaron and his sons, it says here in verse 5, when they were preparing to move, they would take down the covering veil. The veil that, that between the holy place, those of you here we went through Exodus, between the holy place and the holy of holies. There's only one piece of furniture in the holy of holies. What was it? The Ark of the Covenant. Okay? And so there was a veil between that, between the holy place and the holy of holies. And the only time they could enter into the Holy of Holies was on the Day of Atonement, only the high priest, and only with the blood of the Lamb, taken from the altar. Okay, remember Nadab and Abihu went in there. It wasn't Day of Atonement. They had taken strange fire, made a false sacrifice. And what happened to them? Got smoked. Okay, God struck them down because we do things God's way. We, there aren't many paths to God. There's one way, God said, to get to heaven. And Jesus is the only way. So they took it and they covered the Ark of the Testimony. Now, why would they do that? They covered it so that when the, 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 uh, these, the Kohathites, when they came in to move it, they were not to be able to see it. They were never to look on the ark. Okay, look at verse 6. They shall put on a covering of badger skins, spread over that cloth entirely of blue, and they shall insert the poles. So remember, those of you who are here in Exodus, badger skins were always on the outward portion of of the tabernacle. And we talked about badger skins. Badger skins were very ugly. But what was amazing was inside 
below the badger skins, we had goat's hair. And inside of that, though, were these beautiful multicolored tapestries. But these tapestries could only be seen from the inside. Only the person that was in the holy place, the holy holy, they could look up and see this beautiful tapestry. But from the outside, all they saw were these ugly badger skins. I talked about the reason for that because it says of Jesus in Isaiah 53, He has no form or comeliness. And when we see Him, there is no beauty that we should desire Him. You know, from the outward appearance, Jesus was just like any man. But from the inside out, He's the creator of the universe. Amen? And when they looked upon Him outwardly, there was nothing attractive. And when people would come by and see the tabernacle, there was nothing attractive from the outside. It was only from the inside. And so the blue there always represents heaven. When you see blue in the text, it's a representation of heaven. So they would cover it with blue, and then they would cover it with these badger skins. Now they use these poles. Remember why they use these poles? Because they were not to touch the ark. So they would cover it completely. The only thing that was sticking out was the poles, and that's how the Kohathites would carry it. They would carry it by the poles. They were not to touch it. Touch not God's glory. Amen? We'll talk about that in a minute. You know what? The world doesn't understand why you study the Bible. They don't get it. Because they look at it from the outward appearance, and to them it's ugly and it makes no sense. But to us, we see it from the inside, and we know that it has heavenly truth. Amen? The world looks at the Bible, they don't get it. They don't understand it. But with the Spirit of the living God lives inside of us, it's, we should desire it more than our necessary food. Now what was in the ark? Just by quick review. Three things. Who remembers? Aaron's rod. What else? Manna, and one, one more thing, the Ten Commandments. All of them pointing to Jesus. Why? Because the commandments, the law, who's the fulfillment of the law? Jesus Christ. Who, the rod of Aaron, Aaron's the high priest. Who's the great high priest? Jesus Christ. And then the manna, who's the bread of life? Jesus Christ. So the ark, all of it, was pointing to our Savior one more time. And so they were to carry that, they were to cover it, and make sure that they could not see it nor touch it. Verse 7 and 8. On the table of showbread, they spread a blue cloth and put, in it, di, put on it the dishes, the pans, the bowls, the pitchers for pouring, and the showbread shall be on it. And they spread over them a scarlet cloth and covered the same with a covering of badger skins. They shall insert its poles. So this one had a blue covering, then a scarlet covering, and then the badger skins. So when it was being carried, it was ugly. There was nothing special about it. But again, because it's blue, it speaks of heavenly truth, just like the ark is a picture again of our Savior pointing to our Savior, and it's got the cherubim above it, speaking of heavenly things. So too is the table of showbread. Because again, who's the bread of life? Jesus Christ. Now interesting, this is the only one that has scarlet on it. Now why is there scarlet on the table of showbread? Well, the table of showbread also points to communion, Passover. And what do you have? You have the bread and what else? The wine or the juice for us today, right? The wine is a representation of what? The blood of Christ. What color is this cloth that's going over the top of this table? It's red, pointing to the blood of Christ because it's a picture of the bread and the blood. The only one of the implements that had the red on it, nothing happens by chance in the Bible. You see, there's a scarlet. Why is that? Take some time to look, and God shows it to us. So they carried that. Again, a picture of heavenly communion, the Lord's Supper. How many of you know we're going to have the Lord's Supper in heaven? Amen? So Jesus said, He said, I'm going to take this with you again. I'll take this with you anew in, in heaven, in paradise. When, we come to, when you come into heaven, we'll take it together. And I'm going to look forward to that day. So it does, the blue speaks of things in heaven. And so it's something that will happen in heaven. 
The scarlet's a picture of the blood and the bread itself, a picture of the bread, the body of Christ broken for us. Verse 9 and 10. And they shall take a blue cloth and cover the lampstand of the light with its lamps, its wick, wick trimmers, its trays, and all its vessels, which they shall service, and they shall service it. And it says, Then they shall put with it all the utensils in a covering of badger skins and put it on a carrying beam. Now, the lamp covered it with what color again? Blue. Blue is a representation of heavenly things. Who's the light of the world? Jesus Christ. Where is he now? Seated at the right hand of the Father. Do you know when we get to heaven, what is going to illuminate heaven? God. We're not going to need the S-O-N. I mean, that's you in. We're going to have the S-O-N. Amen? We're, going to, we're, not going to need, we're not going to need the sun to illuminate heaven. God's going to illuminate heaven. It'll be lit up by Him. And so this lampstand is a picture of the fact that Jesus not only is the bread of life like the showbread says, but He is the light of the world. But we also see it has a heavenly application because God illuminates heaven. And so we see the blue covering it up as well. Again, the badger skins hid it from those who walk in darkness. They would walk right by it and not even see the light. And so sad that that's true still even today. Verse 11 and 12, look at the altar of incense. Over the golden altar they shall spread a blue cloth and cover it with a covering of badger skins, and they shall insert its poles. Then they shall take all the utensils of the service which they minister in the sanctuary, put in a blue cloth, cover them with a covering of badger skins, and put them on a carrying beam. Again, if you were to see these guys walking with these utensils, you'd think, man, those are some ugly-looking skins carrying who knows what's underneath it. And there'd be very little interest in it. But what's underneath it is awesome. And we see here again, covered in blue. Now, this is the altar of incense. Incense is a representation of what in the Bible? Prayer. And so it was right next to the veil. And they would light the altar of incense, and the, the incense would pour over that veil into the most holy place, a representation of prayers of the people. But again, it's a picture of intercession. And who is the great intercessor? Jesus. The Bible says He is seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us daily. So it's covered in a blue cloth, a picture of something that's heavenly or in, in heaven right now. And that's where Jesus is, seated at the right hand of the Father. Every one of these implements that's in there is a picture of our Savior. So very clearly. And so they were to carry it covered in blue and again, bring it along with them. But the world would see no need for intercession. The world sees no need for intercession. The world thinks it's got it all mapped out by itself. But the reality is we need Jesus. Amen? Desperately, we need Him. Last piece of, of furnishing, verse 13. Also, take away the ashes from the altar and spread a purple cloth over it. They shall put on, on it all its implements with which they minister there the firepans, the forks, the shovels, the basins, and all the utensils of the altar, and they shall spread it on the covering of badger skins and insert its poles. Now remember, this is the bronze altar, or the brass altar, if you will. And this is the place of judgment that was actually outside of the holy place. And it was a place where people came and they made sacrifice. It was the large altar. And it's been said that this altar was just the right size where a man could lay down on it and spread his arms out. And fit on this, this grid, this, it's almost like a barbecue, okay? This, gr this grill, if you will. And it was there that they would take the animals and they had prong four prongs, if you remember, right? Four places, and they would tie the animal down and sacrifice it. So it had four spots where they would tie the animal down. Just like with our Savior, there were four places where He bled. Both of His hands crowned upon the top of His head from the nail through His feet. Four places of blood, four points on the cross, and four on this altar where they would tie the animal off to the horn on the edge of this bronze or brass altar. Now it's interesting here 
that what did they cover this with? What color? Purple. The altar is a picture of the cross. The animal sacrifice on the altar is a picture of our Savior. When they brought our Savior out and brought accusation against Him, what color did they cover Him with? With a purple robe. You remember that? They put a crown of thorns upon His head, and they put a purple robe around Him. Nothing's by chance in the Bible. This is a picture of the cross, this altar here. This is a picture of what happened to our Savior on the way to the cross as they would cover it in purple. Again, they mocked him as the king of the Jews, and you and I know that he truly is the king of kings. Verse 15, And when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, when the camp is set to go, then the sons of Koash shall come and carry them, but they shall not touch any holy thing lest they die. These are the things of the tabernacle of the meeting which the sons of Koath are to carry. Now, God is so specific about this, don't touch my glory. Nadab and Abihu, I mean, immediately went in and got smoked, and I believe it was God's way of warning them. You know what? Only on the Day of Atonement. Only the great high priest. Any other way you try to get in is going to result in destruction. And any other way we try to approach Almighty God, except through Jesus Christ, will end in destruction. Amen? You try to get there on your good works. You try to get there because, you know, you go to church a lot, or you, know, you give to charity, or you're following some man who's not our Savior. Any of those will end in destruction. We can only get there one way. And so we see here that he's warning them, touch not the glory. Now we know later, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but you get to 1 Chronicles chapter 13. If you remember, the Philistines had stolen the ark. You guys remember the story? Philistines had stolen the ark, and all it did was bring havoc to the Philistines. I mean, they had hemorrhoids. That's what the Bible says, okay? It was not good. And they're having boils and hemorrhoids. They're like, get that thing out of town, all right? And nobody wanted it in their town. And finally, they put it on a, on a cart and put oxen in front of it and just let it go and said, if it's really from God, then it'll go home. And sure enough, it went home. When it came into the camp, all of Israel celebrated. It says that David and, and all of Israel began to play music. They were singing and playing harps and stringed instruments and tambourines and cymbals and trumpets. They were just celebrating because the ark had returned. But if you remember, what happened was that the oxen and the cart, the oxen stumbled and the cart started to fall over. And the ark started to slide off. And then a man by the name of Uzzah reached out to touch the ark to keep it from falling. And what happened to him? He got smoked. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 13, And the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and he struck him because he put his hand to the ark, and he died there before God. Touch not the glory. Amen? Only one should be glorified. Only one's worthy to be worshipped, to be praised, to be honored, and to be magnified, and that's God alone. Don't ever make the mistake of glorifying a man or glorifying a ministry. We're not of Calvary Chapel. We're of Jesus Christ. Amen? We go to Calvary Chapel. That's where we fellowship. I love this church. But that's, we're of Jesus. When I get to heaven, he's not going to ask for my Calvary Chapel membership card. Right? We don't have those here, so we'd be in big trouble if he did, Right? You show up, you're a part of the church. But the reality is here, touch not the glory. And too often today, we see people that have become Christian celebrities. Have you seen this? They got guards around them and, you know, worldwide ministry of them, and their name in big letters and, you know, a dry, you know, living in $5 million houses. And man, that just breaks God's heart. He alone should be glorified. Touch not the glory. And he reached down and touched it. And you might say, man, and David was angry. When it happened, David's like, Lord, we're celebrating. But he was saying, was it, how were they supposed to carry it? On poles. And what did they do? They put it on a cart. 
They did something contrary to what God had commanded them to do, and the result was destruction. And we try to do things different than the way God has told us to do it. And you know what I thought about? Again, I don't want to be bagging on it, but I thought about like the seeker-sensitive churches. How, let's water down the gospel and don't tell people they need Jesus and, you know, get some big screens going and, you know, have flying Walendas on Wednesday night and let's shoot a, you know, cannonballs at a fat guy. I mean, what have we got to do? We got Bozo the Clown, a petting zoo. I mean, let's just get the people in there. And as long as we get them there and they bring their checkbook with them, life is good. But the reality is that, man, God desires that we do one thing, that we make disciples. I'd rather disciple 50 than entertain 5,000. And what we see here is I thought about that is let's just do it a different way. Well, that's, and I've had people tell me, Pastor Dave, you know, it's gone by, Calvary chapels just don't get it anymore, man. You've got to be relevant. Like the Bible's irrelevant. Right? You've got to be, you got to, you know, you got to get up with the times, man. I had a guy tell me when I came to Santa Cruz, he goes, Dave, here's what you need to do. You need to get tie-dye shirts, and you need to get black lights and, and, and paint the whole room black and black out the windows and, and, and play these kinds of, you know, instruments, you know, and, and, you know, and have incense burning and that'll draw the crowd. I'm like, dude, we're going to teach the Bible and love people. That's what we're going to do. And sit on really hard chairs in a well-lit room. You know what I mean? That's what we're going to do. And, and the reality is that faith comes by hearing and hearing by what? Word of God. It's God's Word that transforms life. And don't put it on the cart. Don't do it a different way. Don't say, hey, you know, that's the, that's the way it used to work. You know what's amazing to me? Do you know eight out of the ten largest churches in the United States are Calvary chapels? People talk about, they bag on it like we don't get it, but throughout, we just teach the Word and love people. That's it. And God adds daily those who are being saved. The Holy Spirit does that work. Amen? And, you know, each one of you is precious. And we don't need to worry about judging things from the world's perspective. Don't put it on a cart. Don't do things different. God's way is good enough. Amen? God said do it this way. I'm going with God because I'm answering to him one day. We don't need to run it like IBM. So we see here that they tried to do it a different way. They reached out and touched the glory, and it ended up in death. Look at verse 16. The appointed duty of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, is to oil for the light, the sweet incense, the daily grain offering, the anointing oil, the oversight of all the tabernacle and all that is in it with the sanctuary and its furnishings. Eleazar was one of the what? He was one of the priests. And so he carried the oil and he also had oversight of the Kohathites. He had oversight of this family. He had oversight over them. God placed him in authority over them. Verse 17 through 20. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, Do not cut off the tribe of the families of the Kohathites, from among the Levites. But do this in regard to them, that they may live and not die when they approach the most holy things. Aaron and his son shall go in and appoint each of them to his service and task. But they shall not go in and watch while the holy things are being covered, lest they die. So the priest's job was to go in and make sure everything was covered up first. Then they would bring the people in and point them in their direction and say, okay, you ten guys, I want you to come over here and pick up this end of that. You guys come over here and I want you to grab this. And so... The priest's job was to make sure that his people, that there was covering so his people wouldn't die. I find that interesting. The priest's job was to make sure that his people, that their covering was there, that they would not be killed, that they would not be destroyed. And I thought, boy, that's the job of a pastor today. It's to teach God's word that the people might be equipped, that the people might be prepared, that the people might know the truth. Amen? Now, ultimately, that's your job first and foremost, but the pastor's job is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. It's to feed you guys so you're healthy and strong when you go out to work tomorrow. You've been feeding on God's Word and you're prepared to do what God's calling you to do. 
They were to keep watch lest they die. They were to care for this family or their sheep in a sense. To deliver God's word to them lest they die. Guys, be careful. Don't go running in. Let me go before you. Verse 21 through 28. Look at the Gershonites. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Also take a census from the sons of Gershon by their father's house by their families. From 30 years old above, even to 50 years old, you shall number them. All who entered to perform the service to do the work in the tabernacle of meeting. So we see that the first family's job was to take care of the furnishings and to carry them. Now the second family, the Gershonites, they're going to have a different calling. But I want you to see something here, that their calling is different, but it's equally as important. Sometimes I think we make the mistake in the church to make certain callings more important than others. We say, oh, you're called to be the worship leader. That's a really high, high call. Oh, you're called to, you know, to be the pastor, or you're called, you know, things that we see up in front, and we think somehow those have more importance than things that we maybe don't see. But I want to encourage you with something. I don't believe that to be true at all, and I don't see that in God's Word. I believe that, praise God for Mrs. Green, who taught me the Bible when I was four and a half and led me to the Lord when there's me and three other kids in my class. I'm glad she didn't say, oh, there's only four kids. I'm not doing it. If I can't teach 5,000 people in the sanctuary, I'm not into it, right? I'm so glad that she knew what her calling was, and she was obedient to it, because it transformed my life, and I'm going to heaven. Amen? And we look sometimes, and we elevate, you know, well, Billy Graham, you know, and God's used Billy Graham in a mighty way. Amen? But you know what? I believe just as you, just as mighty as Billy Graham is, a, is some lady somewhere who spends three hours a day in her prayer closet praying for the lost people in this world. Amen? Nobody knows her name but God's using her mightily. And we see here that they have different callings, but all of these callings are necessary. All of them must come together or they would not be able to move the tabernacle. So what are the Gershonites? What are they called to do? Verse 24. The servants of the families of the Gershonites in serving and carrying, they shall carry the curtains of the tabernacle. The tabernacle of the meeting with its covering, the covering of badger skins that is on it, the screen for the door of the tabernacle meeting, the screen of the door of the gate of the court, the hangings in the court which are around the tabernacle and the altar and their cords, all the furnishings for their service, all that is made from these things so they shall serve. So they, they're to pick up and carry all of these things. It says, Aaron and his son shall assign all the service of the sons of the Gershonites, all their tasks, all their service. You shall appoint to them all their tasks as their duty. This is the service of the family, the sons of the Gershonites, in the table of meeting, and their duty shall be under the authority of Ithamar, the son of Aaron, the priest. So again, they've got a calling in their lives, and they're under authority, and their calling is to carry all the coverings. And we talked about this a little bit last week, that they, they were to take all the things that covered up the tabernacle. Remember, what is the tabernacle on the outside all the way around? It's skins. These guys have a major job. They've got to carry every single one of these skins, every single skin that covers the tabernacle. This is a massive job. And they're called by God to do it. So they're getting up in the morning, like the Kohathites, and they're looking up and they see the clouds. Oh, the clouds moved. Guys, I don't know if they blew a horn or what. But the clouds moved and they jumped into action and they ran to do their job. But they were under the authority of Ithamar. Again, we cannot lead until we can submit. Amen? We cannot minister and lead others if we're not willing to be submitted ourselves and willing to follow. And these guys were submitted to authority. First, God's authority. And then there was a priest that was placed over them that gave them instruction. And so their job was to carry all the coverings. Now, you might say, these guys aren't in the front. You might feel like these guys sometimes. 
and I'm not in the front. These guys, their job is to pitch the tent and take it down and, and carry it from place to place. And boy, that doesn't seem, you know, very fancy. That doesn't seem like there's a lot of kudos to that job. But you know what? It's, it's kind of like, again, I shared this last week. You might say, I'm not up front or I'm not the one being used in that. But I, when I thought about covering, I thought about one thing. I thought about prayer. And I talked to you guys about when I went to India and how I've never sensed the Holy Spirit in my life in anything I've ever done like I did in India. I was teaching 8, 10, 12 times a day, going nonstop, no sleep, and God just gave me the strength. And my stomach didn't hurt the entire time. I was, it was incredible. But I know that there were hundreds of people, literally, between GFA and our church and the guy who I went to church in Oregon that were praying for us. And do you know the reward is just as great for those who prayed as those who go? I firmly believe that to be true. And these guys, you know, they, didn't, they weren't carrying the ark. Although, I'm thinking carrying the, the coverings might be a little better than carrying the ark. How about you? Because you don't want to slip carrying that ark, right? I'm like, I'd be like, dude, you get eight, eight guys on this pole and just take a real small steps, right? I mean, you've got to be very clear. And I think that's good, though. We need to be awe and reverence for God when we serve in ministry, amen? We need to take things that way. But these guys bring the covering. And then lastly, we see one more family here. The Merarites. And look what it says here. As for the sons of Merari, you shall number them by the families and by their father's house from 30 years old and above, even to 50 years old, you shall number them. Everyone who enters the service to do the work of the tabernacle meeting. And this is what they must carry in all their service for the tabernacle meeting. The boards of the tabernacle, its bars, its pillars, its sockets, the pillars around the court with their sockets, pegs, and cords, with all their furnishings, all their service, with all them assigned to each man by name, the items he must carry. This is the service of the families of the sons of Merari, and as all their service for the tabernacle of meeting under the authority of Ithamar, the son of Aaron the priest. Now this is interesting as well, because they, I believe, had the hardest job of all, because they're carrying all the boards and all the hardware. This is the heavy stuff. Now I find it interesting that it says there that each one of them was assigned by name what they were to carry. Okay, you know, and each person was given, all right, your job is to, you've got these five boards and these five pegs in the ground and these, you know, couplings and everything that hold this together. This section is yours. You carry that. Now, what would happen if one person didn't do his job when they got to the new place? They carry everything, they go to set up the tabernacle, and one guy just didn't bring his stuff. I don't feel like doing it today. I'm saying doing it. Shine it. I'm just, I'm just, you know, I'm going to go hang out with the sheep and I'm going to go do something else, right? I mean, what if they did that? They would get there and go to set up the tabernacle and there'd be a hole in the tabernacle. Because remember, there was only one entrance into the tabernacle. Remember that the, I want to go into it, but remember the colors of the, of the screen? Remember a picture of Jesus Christ again? Because there's only one way into the tabernacle. There's only one way into heaven through Jesus. So it meant that every one of them had to be obedient and had to do what God called them to do. They were called by name, and they had to respond in obedience to it. If they wanted to walk closely to the Lord and be led by Him, they needed to first see the cloud move, and then be obedient to exactly what they were called to do. Can you imagine what would happen in the world today if every Christian who's been born again would respond in obedience to what they're called to do? Whoa. It would be incredible. The world would be turned right side up. Amen? Because it's upside down right now, right? I mean, it would be turned right side up. And we would just respond to what we're called to do. So I love this. Now, what do we see here? We see that their callings are all different. 
One called for the furnishings, one called for the covering, one called for the support. When I thought about these guys, I thought about the people that come and set up the sound system and come and set up the chairs and the guys who make the tapes and distribute the tapes and do the stuff for the radio, stuff again that nobody sees, but if they didn't come and do it, we couldn't have church. And we see here, so you've got the, the furnishings, you've got the covering, and you've got the support, but all of them working together made worship possible. If one of them fell down, it would keep from worship being what it was supposed to be. Keep from ministry being what it's supposed to be. And what I thought about here is that we need fellowship. We need to come together and use our gifts to minister to one another. That everyone is equally needed. You know the text that says, if we were all eyes, where would be the hearing, right? God desires that we be eyes and ears in the entire body. And we all need to use our gifts. And then I'll go through this last portion here fairly quickly because it just gives numbers. The last thing we see here is the number of the serviceable Levites. And just a couple quick points. Moses and Aaron and the leaders of the congregation number the sons of the Kohathites by their families and by their father's house. From 30 years old and above, even to 50 years old, everyone that entered the service for the work of the tabernacle meeting. And those who numbered by their families were 2,750. These were the ones who were numbered by the families of the Kohathites, all all who might serve in the tabernacle of meeting, whom Moses and Aaron numbered according to the commandment of the Lord by the hand of Moses. Okay, so the Kohathites have 2,750 guys who have one focus, one goal, and one passion. What is it? To move the furniture, right? Global van lines, right? The Kohathites. Their job was to move the furnishings, but for them to, to, again, be led by God, to walk in closeness to Him, they had to keep their eyes on the cloud, and when the cloud moved, they had to respond in obedience, they had to wait until the things were covered, and they were to carry the things exactly the way that God had called them to carry them. Then and only then would God be able to, would God use them to transport it. They used great caution, they gathered together. Move the, ta- now, verse 38 through 41. And those who were numbered of the sons of Gershon by the families of their father's house, from 30 years old and above, even to 50 years old, everyone who entered the service for work in the tabernacle of meeting, those who were numbered by their families by their father's house, were 2,630. These are the ones who were numbered of the families of the sons of Gershon, of all who might serve in the tabernacle of meeting, whom Moses and Aaron numbered according to the commandment of the Lord. So there's 2,630 Gershonites, aged 30 to 50. Again, eyes looking up ready for God's leading, and what do they do? They move the coverings, all right? Their job just as important as the Gershonites, both of them, Kohathites. The Gershonites and the Kohathites had equally important callings. And then lastly, the last tribe here, the, these are the families of the sons of Merari, verse 42, who were numbered by these families by their father's house from 30 years old and above, even to 50 years old. Everyone had entered the service for work in the tabernacle meeting. These, those who were numbered by their families was 3,200. These are the ones who were numbered of the families of the sons of Merari, whom Moses and Aaron numbered according to the word of the Lord by the hand of Moses. Now, it's interesting. If you go back and look at the size from one month and above of each of these tribes, you know what, or, or these families, are not tribes, it's all part of Levite. But which was the smallest family? Merari. But which one had the most guys able to work? Merari. But isn't it interesting that they also had the greatest task ahead of them? They're carrying the boards and the hardware. You know what I thought about? Where God guides, God provides. You know, these guys' calling is greater calling. They have a smaller family, but God still provides through them enough men between the ages of 30 and 50 to get the job done. And that's, God's, that's the way God works. When God calls us, He provides for us. If He calls us, He equips us to do the work. And they were all to carry the heaviest part, the support work of the tabernacle. And again, like I said, these are the guys who, who 
their, their job was basically unseen. But if they didn't do it, they couldn't set up the tabernacle. And the people didn't get here early and set up chairs and set up the sound equipment and, and do the things that we, a lot of us take for granted. We walk in every week, the chairs are here, the sound system's up, the worship team's ready to go, the bookstore's ready to go, the, you know, the, the snacks and the drinks, it's all ready to go. You just show up and, and that's great. But that means somebody came early and did it. Sometimes three hours early, right? But praise God because they're being like the Merarites, right? They're just saying, that's what I'm called to do. And by them being faithful, we can fellowship. Last three verses here. Four verses, excuse me. All who were numbered, verse 46, of the Levites, whom Moses and Aaron and the leaders of Israel numbered by their families and by their fathers' houses from 30 years old and above, even to 50 years, everyone who came to do the work and service, the work of the bearing burdens in the tabernacle of meeting, those who were numbered were 8,580. According to the commandment of the Lord, they were numbered by the hands of Moses, each one according to his service, according to his task. Thus were they numbered by him as the Lord commanded Moses. So God had numbered every single one of these 8,580 guys and given them a task. They were, commanded, they were commanded by God. And what's amazing to me is they all had to be obedient or it wouldn't have worked. But what was the precedence for these guys? When Moses said, all of you who want to serve the Lord, come to me. How many of the Levites went? All of them. And for this to work, all of them had to respond. If any one of them didn't, because they had tasks given to them by name, they were numbered by God, then there would have been a hole. And do you know, I believe there's a hole, there are holes in our church here in Santa Cruz. Just because, you know, God's doing great things, but I believe there are more things that God wants to do. I don't even know what they are. But I know that God has callings on our lives. And some of us, we're too busy to do what God's called us to do. Or we're afraid to do what God's called us to do. Or we feel ill-equipped. Just remember, a burden is the spawning ground of a calling, where God guides, God provides. He wants to use all of us. Amen? He wants to use you just as much as He wants to use me. We want to see Santa Cruz. Revival here. Amen? Santa Cruz. Holy Cross. We want to see that here. Amen? We need to be praying and seeking God's face and responding in obedience, just like these guys did. Now, 8,580 sounds like a lot of people. How many Israelites were there? Three million. Does 8,580 sound like a lot now? No. But notice that these guys are doing the work so that all might worship. These 8,580 are the ones carrying everything and resetting up the tabernacle so all three million can make sacrifice. So everybody can enter into service. Isn't it amazing how it's always a small number that is obedient, but most people are not being obedient to what they're called to do and they're missing out. God did great things through the few who are wholly devoted to His will. The last verse I'll leave you with is in 2 Chronicles. It's one of my favorites. 2 Chronicles 16.9 says this, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show Himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to Him. The eyes of the Lord search to and fro through Santa Cruz, through your neighborhood, through your job site, searching for somebody who can show Himself strong on account of Him. Account of him. Someone whose heart is loyal to Him. He just wants to bless somebody who says, Lord, just use me. Lord, I know that I'm, I'm not perfect. Lord, I know that, I, you know, apart from you, I can do no good thing, but I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Lord, use me. His eyes are looking. My prayer is that we would wake up in the morning looking for the cloud. Amen? We'd wake up in the morning. Where's God going? Where's He moving today? How does He want me to follow Him? What direction do you want me to go? Lord, bring divine appointments today and help me walk in obedience to what you've called me to do. So in review, following God's lead, how do we remain in His presence? First, we look first to God. We begin our day seeking after Him. 
And then we respond in obedience to what He's called us to do. When He calls us to do something, we don't say next week, next month, next year. Notice that they, when did they serve? In the prime of their life. Amen? They didn't wait till they had enough money in the bank and had their house paid off, and then they went to serve. Right? They served and gave God the best of their time, the best of their abilities. Not what was left, what was best. Amen? And so we see here that they gave them the prime of their lives. They took direction from Him and responded in obedience, and then they sought out fellowship. They used their gift in conjunction with the others that were around them. You know what? May we be a church that is so in love with the Lord that we wake up in the morning looking for His glory and say, Lord, what do you want to do with me today? How do you want to use me? Here I am, Lord. Use me. Lord, I'll pick up boards if you want me to. Lord, I'll carry the furniture. Lord, if you want me to, whatever you want me to do, Lord, just show me. Use me, Lord. And I'll tell you, God can take people like that and do great and awesome things. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you again that these moving instructions written to the children of Israel, and most specifically the Levites, 3,500 years ago, has application for us today. And Father, I pray that we would apply these truths to our life, that Lord, we would be people that are watching for your glory, looking for your movement, looking to seek after you first thing in the morning, Lord, and then following you all day long. And Lord, when you do call us, may you help us to respond in obedience. And then Father, may we never take for granted or take lightly the calling you've placed upon our lives. May we never think it's less than something else. But may we realize if you've called us, it's important to you. Lord, may we respond to it. Father, whether it's setting up chairs or working in the children's ministry, or, or praying for people at work by name, whatever it might be, Lord, doing missions. Father, just show us your will and help us to respond in obedience. Lord, we love you and we praise you. We just thank you, Lord, that you loved us so much that you'd rather die than live without us. We ask these things in your holy and your precious name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand and close the worship song.